The following message was recorded at Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. For more information and resources from Shades Valley, please visit us at shadesvalley.org. So I invite you to open your Bibles to John 18. John 18, yes, chapter 18. I'm excited. We're back into narrative. We've been in discourse. Jesus has been talking since chapter 13. It's been dense. It's been thick. And now we're back into narrative and story. It's fantastic. But it is slightly a little bit dark. Jesus is being betrayed, being arrested. But I'm just excited. We're back into narrative. So, John 18. Just so everyone knows, uh, we have officially entered into the danger zone, my family and I, my wife. Uh, could go into labor at any point. We are officially within range of that. So if I have to leave uh, mid-sermon, somebody just grab my notes, keep right on rolling, y'all have a great time. Uh, But because because we are so close to this kid's birth, I found myself uh, reflecting on the miracle of life once again. I've been privileged to witness this four times up to this point. And any time I reflect on any of my children's births, Uh, There's one truth that always comes to the forefront of my mind, and that's this. Childbirth is weird. Like, like beautiful, but weird. Like, especially, I don't know if any of you are weird, like I am, but it's especially weird if you try to think about it from the baby's perspective. Like, Like, aren't you glad none of us can remember our own birth, that God very graciously and mercifully grants us amnesia for like the first two years of our life? Otherwise, we'd probably all be permanently traumatized and embarrassed. But but the thing is, it has to be such a weird experience for a baby. You're all like snug, warm, the lights are low, your mother's voice hums like music in the background. It's like the perfect napping environment. Then, pain, bright lights, noise, it's cold, people are jerking you around, they're poking and prodding you, it's like, welcome to the world, it hurts. <laughs> oh, you gotta be like, who's doing this to me, and why? They must hate me, they couldn't possibly love me, or they wouldn't be putting me through this. But yet, from our perspective... We know that love is the reason, precisely the reason, that all of this is happening. We know that a mother, with full knowledge, a mother knowing the pain that she's going to have to endure, she chooses to give life to her child anyway. She puts her own life on the line, literally. And, and why? Love and life. She endures pain even at the risk of death because she loves the child to whom she is giving life. That's what is happening. Even if the baby can't see it, know it, or understand it. Something similar is happening in John 18 verses 1 to 12. Jesus with full knowledge. Jesus knowing the pain and the death that he is about to endure, he sovereignly chooses to go to the cross anyway. 
He lays down his life. Doesn't just put it on the line. He lays it down. Nobody takes it from him. He lays it down of his own accord. He's in charge, sovereign over all, and he sovereignly, rulingly lays down his life. Why? Love and life. He will endure pain and death because he loves his disciples to whom he is giving life. That's what is happening, even if the disciples can't see it, know it, or understand it. And they don't. Like, we get that clearly as we read through the narrative. They don't get it. They don't see it. They don't understand. To, to them, in our passage today, to them, Jesus is just being betrayed and arrested. It doesn't look like love and life. It looks like hate and death. It doesn't look like Jesus is sovereign over the situation. It looks like he's losing. And they're left wondering what to do. We, we feel this too. Do we not? Like when you, when you look at the state of the world, or you look at the state of your world, does it look to you like Jesus is sovereign right now? I imagine that most of us feel like the disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane. The situation around us makes it look like Jesus is losing. And we're left wondering what to do. This is why we need John 18 this morning. In, in this passage, I want us to see Jesus' sovereignty, especially in Gethsemane. I want us to see, because I think this is what John, our author, wants to see. I want us to see that he is still sovereign even when we can't see it. We, we need to see this so that we're not left wondering what to do. Through, through the disciples in this passage, we're going to see what it looks like when people come to the conclusion that the world is, when Christians come to the conclusion that the world is winning and Jesus is losing. And what it looks like is it looks like betrayal and bloodshed. Like, if, if these disciples could believe that Jesus is sovereign, that he's in control, no matter what it looks like, if they could believe that he is sovereign, then they would sheathe their swords and trust in the Lord. They wouldn't be confused. They would be confident in Christ. If they believed, then they would see that sovereignty changes so, let's dive into this text together to see those two things. Number one, let's see that Jesus is still sovereign even when we can't see it. And number two, let's see how his sovereignty changes everything, if we will believe it. That's the plan. Here we go. Number one, Jesus is still sovereign even when we cannot see it. Look at chapter 18, starting in verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. It was 
a walled garden most likely. There would have been a specific entrance. He and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place. For Jesus often met there with his disciples. So for nearly the last five chapters, Jesus has been talking to his disciples. He's been telling them that an hour is coming for him to be betrayed to his death. And now that hour is is squarely, poignantly here. His words are finished. When he'd finished speaking these words, his words are finished. And now he leads the way to their fulfillment. Like, this is what John wants us to see. Not just right here, but through all of chapters 18 and 19, which concern Jesus' arrest, his trials, his death. John wants us to see in all of that sovereignty that Jesus is going where he's going on purpose, that this is his plan, that he is ruling, he's in control. His words that that he's just spoken, he is now leading the way to their fulfillment. John wants us to see sovereignty. He wants... He wants our spirit to marinate in the truth of the sovereignty of Christ. He wants our spirit to marinate in the sovereignty of Christ so that when our spirit's squeezed by something like Gethsemane, what comes out is trust in Christ's sovereignty. I think that often, I think I can start a message like this, and, and it's very easy, it's very easy for me to do this. I think it's very for all of us as Christians to go, oh, okay, we're talking about Jesus' sovereignty, Jesus is sovereign, check, believe that, why do we even need to talk about this again? Why do we need to even listen to this again? My children know that they are supposed to say, yes, sir, no, sir, yes, ma'am, and no, ma'am. Like, they know that. They don't do it, like at all, ever, and what do we do? We constantly set that before them again and again and again. We're soaking their mind in it until it becomes muscle memory, until they do it automatically, like I still do, even though now in my life everybody wants me to quit. That's what we do, right? We train our children to say that, and right about the time they get the hang of it, everybody starts asking them to stop, such as life. But we all know what mental muscle memory is, physical muscle memory. I can know the correct way to throw a baseball, but it takes a lot of repetitions to actually be able to do it. I've got to develop muscle memory. You've got to develop spiritual muscle memory. You can know that Christ is sovereign, but you get into your own Gethsemane, and that truth is the furthest thing from the way that you live and the actions you carry out. It is for me. My heart, my mind, my spirit has got to soak in this reality. This is why we come here week after week and we come back to this word and we sit in the truth of the gospel again and again and again, soaking our spirit in it so that when we're squeezed, gospel reality is what comes out. Gospel reality is how we see the world, how we see our suffering, how we see our purchases, how we see our entire lives. This this is why we come to the table week after week. Physically bringing ourselves here, kneeling and saying to myself, just as much as bread and and drink sustain physical life, I need Christ more than all of that. His body broken, his blood poured out. That's what gives me true spiritual life. And I do that week after week after week so that when life squeezes me, I know I come to Christ. He is my life. This is why we do, and this is what John wants. So he's going to set this reality before us again Again, he wants us to see that no matter what things may look like on the surface, Jesus is sovereignly in control of it all. 
So, in verses 1 through 12, there are at least five things. I'm going to show you five. There are at least five things that John emphasizes to show Jesus is sovereign, even when you can't see it. Let's just walk our way through them quickly. First, John emphasizes place. He emphasizes place. On this night, we find Jesus is leading his disciples to a specific place, spiritually and physically, not just to Gethsemane. He's taking them somewhere with his words, his instructions, his actions. He's taking them somewhere spiritually, too. He's preparing their heart and their mind to receive a truth. He's taking them to a specific place. They've spent most of their night in the upper room celebrating the Passover feast together. If you remember Passover, it's a, it's a meal that commemorated uh, when God saved his people out of slavery in Egypt. The way he did that was he provided a substitutionary sacrifice of a lamb. Through that, he brings his people out of slavery. Jesus has just celebrated that meal with the sacrificial lamb and told his disciples, this meal is really all about me. He's leading them somewhere spiritually. After dinner, they exit. He leads them through the, through the city, still talking, still praying. He takes them eventually out, in our passage, out of the eastern wall, down into the Kidron Valley to cross the brook of the Kidron, which on this night would be running red with blood. Literally. It's Passover. Every home in Jerusalem is sacrificing a lamb. Well over 2,000 lambs have been sacrificed on the altar at the temple. And there is a drain at the base of the altar of the temple. You want to guess where it drains to? Kidron. It would literally be running red with, with blood. What, what do you think is on the mind of the disciples as Jesus walks through that bloody water and they're following his blood-red footprints out of the valley up the Mount of Olives. Like he's using Passover to lead them somewhere. Spiritually, he's preparing their hearts for how he is about to sovereignly go to the altar that is the cross. He's going to go there as our substitutionary sacrificial lamb. He's going to go there to set us free from, sin, from the slavery of sin and death. He is preparing their hearts and their minds to finally understand the first words that were spoken about Christ in this gospel. First words another human being says about Jesus in the gospel of John come in John 1.29. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Nothing here is happening by chance. Not a footstep. The physical place he's leading them to is not even happening by chance. Gethsemane, did, did you notice what John, our author, said in verse 2? said, now Judas, who betrayed Jesus, also knew the place. For Jesus often met there with his disciples. The place that Jesus goes is one that Judas himself knows. Like Jesus does that on purpose. He wants Judas to find him. He's not hiding. He's ruling. John wants to show that Christ is sovereign in this situation, completely in control of how it all unfolds, no matter what it looks like to anyone else. Shades, 
Jesus is sovereign even when we cannot see it. John shows that by emphasizing place, but that's not all. Second, he emphasizes purpose. Purpose. Look at verses 3 and 4. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went with their lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, all, not some, not part, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward. That's a bad translation of the Greek. It's literally went out. Remember, he's in a walled garden and he's not staying there. He knows what's coming and he goes out to meet it. Jesus, knowing all that would happen, went out and said to them, whom do you seek? So from the Garden of Gethsemane, which is up on the side of the Mount of Olives, you're looking over the city of Jerusalem. I've I've stood there before. You've got this panoramic view of the entire city. And, And even though the garden itself is walled, you're high enough up on the Mount of Olives that you can see everything, the entire valley below you. So as Jesus was there spending time in prayer, like there, there's no doubt that he had to see this huddle of torches coming out of the city, crossing over the bloody Kidron, and starting up the path towards Gethsemane's entrance. What did he do? Did he try to run, hide? Not, that's clearly what they were expecting him to do. They're carrying lanterns and torches. It's Passover. The moon is full. You're going into an olive grove. It is not a difficult place to find someone. They're expecting him to run and hide and them to need to be able to search him out of the dark crevice. He doesn't do that. No, he does quite the opposite. He doesn't even stay inside the safety of the garden walls. Knowing all that would happen to him, he went out. His face was set like a flint toward the cross. And he proceeded with sovereign purpose. John is showing us that Jesus is sovereign even when we cannot see it by emphasizing purpose. He's doing what he's doing purposefully. Third thing that John shows us, he emphasizes Jesus' person. He emphasizes his person. What kind of person comes out to knowingly face a cross? Like, who, who does that? John shows us very clearly what kind of person does that. Jesus asked the crowd, whom do you seek? They answer in verse 5 and 6. They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. We're after a man, a specific man. Jesus is a common name. We're after Jesus from this city of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. The literal Greek is ego me. It means quite literally, I am. We've seen Jesus use this language over and over throughout this gospel. It is a direct reference to deity, to the name by which God himself identified himself all the way back in Exodus 3 at the burning bush to Moses. I am that I am. Who are you looking for? Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus says, I am. Look what happens. Jesus said to them, I am he, I am. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. He wasn't standing for long, because look at verse 6. When Jesus said to them, I am, 
they drew back and fell to the ground. Whom do they seek? Jesus of Nazareth, a man. Who do they get? The great I am, God. And it knocks them to the ground. It's a fairly common occurrence in Scripture when someone realizes they are encountering God. They, they fall to the ground. This is who they're looking for. It is Jesus of Nazareth, a man, fully man. He is also the great I am, fully, fully God. Jesus is the God-man. What kind of person comes out knowingly to sovereignly face a cross? John is showing us that Jesus is the sovereign one, God over all, who faces the cross. He's showing us Jesus is sovereign even when we cannot see it by emphasizing his person, who he is, God in the flesh fourth thing that John emphasizes. He emphasizes Jesus' protection of his own. He emphasizes Jesus' protection of his own. Look at verses 7 to 9. So Jesus asked them again, like, don't just lay there. Get up. Let's do this thing. I got, I got a schedule. Jesus asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said to him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. Like, Come on, guys, let's, let's get with the program. I told you that I am he. So, or more literally, therefore, if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Already we see Jesus substituting himself for his own. Like this is... This is a small sign of a, a fuller picture of what's about to happen through the cross. Jesus substituting himself for his people. John, John wants us to know that this is not Jesus making a suggestion to the soldiers. No, this is him taking sovereign action. How does he point that out to us? He points it out by saying this is fulfilling what Jesus has already said is going to happen. Just one chapter ago, John chapter 17 and verse 12, Jesus literally said, Father, those whom you've given me, I've lost not one. And even here, he's saying, I'm going to fulfill that promise. They are going to be sovereignly secure. Shades, so are we. Our Savior speaks these words not just of those disciples in the garden with him that night, but of us as well, of those whom you gave me, Father, I have lost not one. You are sovereignly secure. That, that phrase, in combination with the events in the garden, it doesn't mean that nothing bad will ever happen to us. That's not true for the disciples that are there in Gethsemane. All of these guys, save one, are going to be martyred. Clearly, Jesus is not saying, I will keep them from all physical harm. No, what Christ is doing is supposed to serve as a small sign, pointing to his sovereign purpose that he's accomplishing that night. He's being our substitute, our sacrificial lamb. He's being taken that we might be let go from slavery to sin and death. He's offering himself for our not temporal physical protection, but our eternal protection. He's sovereignly securing all his people just like he said he would. John is showing us that Jesus is sovereign even when we cannot see it, by emphasizing his protection 
of his people. Fifth, last thing that John emphasizes. He emphasizes prophetic fulfillment. To show us that Christ is sovereign even when we can't see it, John emphasizes prophetic fulfillment. We already saw this some in verse 9. We're told that Jesus is taking the action that he's taking, protecting his own in order to fulfill the words that he spoke. John treats the words that Jesus spoke as scripture. But just in case we've missed that point, Jesus himself says all that he's doing is to fulfill everything foretold by the prophets in the Old Testament. I'm fulfilling all of the scriptures. Look at verses 10 and 11. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it, struck the high priest's servant, and cut off his right ear. Servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Shall I not drink the cup? What does that, what does that mean? You've probably heard that language before in the other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They all actually tell us about the content of what Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. And they all say something very similar. Luke says it like this. Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Very similar to now the resolve we see Jesus showing in John. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? What, what is this cup? Isaiah 51 and verse 17, Wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs. Jeremiah 25, 15, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, and he said to me, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. The cup is a prophetic image for the righteous wrath of God against sin. And Jesus won't let Peter or anyone else stop him from making his way to the cross to drink down the cup filled with the wrath of God that my sin deserved, that I deserved to drink. Jesus will go to the cross, drink down that cup as our substitute sacrificial lamb, drink down the very wrath of God, turn that cup over and declare it is finished. Anne Ross Cousins' poem says it best. I love poetry. I'm sorry if you don't. We're going to read two today. Death and the curse were in that cup. O Christ, t'was full for thee, but thou hast drained the last dark dregs. Tis empty now for me. This, this is what the entirety of the Old Testament prophesied, both in literal words of prophecy and in pictures like we've seen in Passover. That Christ would be our substitute. Take our place. And that's what we see happening. Christ fulfilled all Old Testament prophecy sovereignly. Praise the Lord, Peter's sword couldn't stop him. No sword can. Not Peter's, not, not the swords that all the soldiers brought with them. That's what makes verse 12 so funny. I think that John is winking at us in verse 12, being a little bit ironic. Read it with me. So, the band of soldiers and their captain and officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. Really? Like, think about what John has been emphasizing. It, 
after all we've seen, him holding forth to show the sovereignty of Jesus in this situation, held forth place, purpose, person, protection, prophetic fulfillment. After all of that, isn't it funny that the soldiers would think that they are arresting Jesus? Like the man who knocked them to the ground with words. Let's tie him up. That'll help. Uh, Retired Pastor Kent Hughes says, in a very real sense, the cohort did not arrest Jesus. He arrested them. Do you see it, Shay? Even in Gethsemane, do you see Jesus' sovereignty? His disciples don't. And we, we may have just walked through the events of that night, seeing all the different ways that Christ is in control, but they're blind to all of that. To them, standing in the garden that night, Jesus doesn't look sovereign. He looks like he's losing. They're left wondering what to do. How often is that you? How often is that, that me? Like it may be easy for us this morning to sit back and, and to look at the disciples' situation, and we can see the sovereignty of God here. We can see how God is pulling off Romans 8, 28, how God's working all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. We're like, chill out, guys. Like, we know what's going to happen. Jesus has got this. It's easy, I think, for me, especially, to, to kind of sit and cast judgment on the disciples. Like, holy cow, how many promises has he given y'all? How many times has he told you this is what's going to happen? Like, just trust him. He's got this. I think that's easy for me to do, for us to do, from outside Gethsemane. What about when you're in it? We all go through Gethsemanes. Pastor, poet Clarence McCartney writes, Down shadowy lanes, across strange streams, bridged over by our broken dreams, behind the misty caps of years, beyond the great salt fount of tears, the garden lies. Strive as you may. You cannot miss it in your way. All paths that have been or shall be passed somewhere through Gethsemane. We all go through our own Gethsemane. Situations when in our life it looks like Jesus isn't sovereign. Oh, from our vantage point, it, it looks like he's losing and we're left wondering what to do. And it is, it is precisely in those Gethsemane situations that we need to know sovereignty changes everything if we will believe it. Marinate in it. Saturate in it. So that our spirit knows it to be the truth. And when we're squeezed, trust in the sovereign Christ is what comes out. I think that this is the second thing John wants us to see in this text. He's shown us, one, that Jesus is still sovereign even when we cannot see it. Now, let's see, number two, sovereignty changes everything if we will believe it. 
See that with me, Shades. His, his disciples can't see it. They don't believe it. They're left wondering what to do. And the result is betrayal and bloodshed. John holds forth those two things through two specific disciples, Judas and Peter. And he holds them forth as, as mirrors in which for us to look at ourselves, perhaps even see ourselves. He's holding them forth as mirrors that, that serve as warnings. He wants us to to look at Judas, to look at Peter, to, to see what happens when we fail to see and believe that Jesus is sovereign even when it doesn't look like it. So first, he holds up Judas. Jesus knew that Judas's faith was superficial from the very beginning. We learned that in John chapter 6. And even by the time we got to John chapter 12, we began to get hints that Judas's false faith was, was failing. He had doubts about Christ and who he was. Jesus did not appear to Judas to be on the winning side, which for Judas that meant on the side of money, power, prestige. It is likely that Judas expected Jesus to start a political revolution, and he put all of his hope in that. It's a good thing we don't do that anymore put our hopes in someone who start a political revolution and save us all. We've changed so much. Judas, him winning, looks like money, power, prestige. So, all it took was a payoff of 30 pieces of silver to convince him to take charge of a powerful cohort of soldiers and side with the prestigious religious leaders against Jesus. A little bit of money, a little bit of power, a little bit of prestige. Judas was lured away by the weapons of the world. And that's what he shows up with. Verse 3, look at it again. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Didn't look like Jesus was winning. So he was going to win with the weapons that the world uses. He's going to win in the world's way. He was going to stand with them. Look again at verse 4. Jesus says, whom do you seek? And they answer in verse 5, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. This is where John in his gospel leaves Judas. He doesn't talk about him again. He leaves him fading in with the world. It's the way New Testament scholar D.A. Carson puts it. Like, John doesn't go on to tell us how Judas regretted what he did. He doesn't go on to tell us how Judas would ultimately commit suicide. No, John leaves him in the garden as a sellout, standing on the side of the world. As if to ask us, could we do the same? Shades. This temptation is so strong. Like when, when the nights in your life grow long and dark, when you pass through your own Gethsemanes and it looks like Jesus is losing, the temptation to join the apparent winning side can be so strong. When your beliefs are made to look bigoted 
and outdated. And the world falsely holds up itself as tolerant and loving. It's tempting to walk away from your faith. And it feels like you're in the wrong and everybody else is in there. It's tempting to walk away from your faith. I sit and I counsel people who feel that pull. When, when your commitment to Christ calls for sacrifice in your life. Maybe you're, you're single. And this is a sacrificial lifestyle that you haven't chosen for yourself and that you don't want. Maybe, maybe Christ, for some of you, has called for sacrifices in your finances to change your occupation, your complete way of life in order to maximize your finances for the spread of the gospel. Perhaps Christ has called some of us in this room, though we do not know it yet, to even sacrifice our very breath, life, die. When your commitment to Christ calls for sacrifice and, and then the world holds up the opposite, for you single, the world holds up an invitation to be with whoever you want, however you want, whenever you want. When it calls for... When, when Christ calls for financial sacrifice and, and the, the world holds up the goal of gaining as much financial resources as you can and using it all to seek your own pleasure as much as possible. When Christ and commitment to him calls for the sacrifice of your very life and yet the world holds up a, a lifestyle of preserving your life as much as possible to be used for pleasing yourself. It is so tempting to walk away from a faith that requires sacrifice and walk over to a life of self-indulgence. And you experience suffering and disappointment when walking with Jesus does not turn out how you thought it would. And it looks like Jesus is losing. It's tempting to walk away to a world that claims it can give you what you want. Shades, hear me. In all of that, the world is tempting you with 30 pieces of silver to walk away from a Savior. You have the greatest treasure. Don't trade it. No matter what it looks like, I promise you, that trading a savior for silver is suicide. Don't trade him. Think, think of how sovereignty would have changed everything for Judas if, if he would have believed it, even when he couldn't see it. I know it doesn't look like Christ is on the winning side. I know it doesn't look like he's going about things the way that I would want him, but I trust him and I believe him that he's sovereign over all. Judas' story would not have ended with suicide, but with salvation. Sovereignty changes everything if we will believe it. Judas isn't the only disciple that, is, that John holds up to show us this. No, second John, second, John holds up Peter as a mirror in which we can see ourselves. When, uh, when Peter fails to see Jesus as sovereign, there that night in that garden, when, when Peter thinks that Jesus is 
losing. The result for Peter, it's different than Judas. The result for Peter isn't betrayal. It's still not awesome. It's bloodshed. Look at it again. Verse 10. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Now, you, you got to at least love Peter a little bit. Like, he just goes for it, right? He pulls out a sword, and he just starts hacking. Like, he's not even stabbing. He's just hacking. And, and these soldiers, most likely, when you look at the type of armor they wore, most likely they are all wearing helmets, and this is why Peter probably only gets an ear. Poor Malchus gets conked on the head, most likely, and the sword deflects to the right, so... For all his effort, Peter manages to get 50% of one man's hearing. The point, the point is that Peter pulled out a sword, the same weapons of the world. That's what they brought to the fight. That's what Peter draws. Because it looks like Jesus is losing. So Peter decides he's going to save the Savior. How ridiculous does that sound? How ridiculous does it look when you set a sword next to sovereignty? And yet Peter is a mirror image of me when I find myself in Gethsemane's. Like, I don't know about you, but in my own life, when it looks like Jesus is losing, I get out my own sword. I, I resort to the weapons of the world to help Jesus out. For me, when I find myself in a Gethsemane, the weapon that I choose to draw is my brain. It's not a very sharp sword. I didn't say it was a good one. I just said I drew one, okay? I'm going to think my way out of this. This suffering, this hurt, this pain. I'm going to think my way out. This financial I'm going to think my way out. Political situation, I'm going to think my way out. I'm going to use my wisdom my knowledge. I'm going to trust in myself. We all have a sword. Perhaps for you, when it looks like Jesus is losing in our culture, it's let's pull out the sword of political power. Let's seize that one. No matter if we have to sacrifice our character or credibility. Whatever it takes, grab the sword of political power for Jesus. Or perhaps we grab the social media sword. That's a new favorite. Like if it looks like Jesus is losing, I'm going to go to war with the sword of Twitter and Facebook. No matter how hateful I look, I'm just going to spew venom all over the world wide web until I get my point across. Or perhaps if it looks like Jesus is losing, we pull out the sword of compromise. Let's just cut away everything that we believe that the world finds offensive. Truth doesn't really matter. The exclusivity of Christ, his life and death, substitutionary death, his resurrection. Let's just chop out all things miraculous. Let's just cut away everything that the world finds offensive about our faith. As long as we make Jesus look attractive, we'll turn him into just like a moralistic guru that people will find attractive so we can get him back in the win column. 
When it looks like Jesus is losing in my life, how quickly do I get out my sword? Something else I can put my trust in, my faith in. How quickly do I run to a little bit of money, a little bit of power, a little bit of prestige? What's your sword? Think about it. In your life, when it looks like Jesus is losing in the world or in your world, what weapon do you draw to help him out? What's your sword? Whatever it is, Jesus' word to Peter in verse 11 is a word to us all. Put your sword into its sheath. Why shall I, I, I who am sovereign, I who am working here, I am who am in control and do not need your help, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Sheathe your sword and trust in the sovereign Lord, shades. Put away the weapons of the world and believe that Jesus is sovereign even when you cannot see it, for sovereignty changes everything, if you will, believe it. Has, has not our sight of Christ's sovereignty here in, in John 18, has, has not our sight of Christ's sovereignty changed the way we see this passage? Has it not made, verse 12, where Jesus is arrested, has it not made that laughable? As if the soldiers are really in charge here? Like if Peter could see the sovereignty of his Lord, he would never have unsheathed his sword. He wouldn't have reached for the weapons of the world. He would have fought with the same weapon Christ is fighting with in this passage. What weapon is that? What weapon did Christ use against the world and all their swords to knock them to the ground? The weapon of his word. Which is sharper, by the way, than any two-edged sword because it's able to pierce the division of soul and spirit, not just joints and marrow. It can judge and expose the thoughts and intentions of the heart all the way to the cross. We're going to see it. Christ will wield the weapon of his word, revealing who he is. I am he, the God-man, the substitutional, sacrificial lamb. I am the sovereign savior. And shades, shades, we fight with the same sword, the word that reveals who Christ is. We fight with the gospel. We fight for love and for life, no matter what kind of pain that brings our way. No matter how much it looks like Jesus is losing in this world or in our world, we fight the good fight of the faith by the word of the gospel, and we will conquer shades because Revelation chapter 12 and verse 11 promises that the people of God will conquer by the blood of the Lamb and the word, the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. We don't fight with the weapons of the world to save and secure our lives. No, we sheathe our swords and we trust in the Lord who is sovereign to save. We fight for love and for life by proclaiming the good news that no matter what Gethsemane we go through, for we know that Jesus is sovereign even when we cannot see it. And we know that that sovereignty changes everything if we will believe it. Believe it, Shades. Amen. Amen.